This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice podcast, your bi-weekly source of news, views and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS, who has had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. As always, I'm James Bannister. And I'm Emma Phillips. This week, we'll start the last of our topic areas for season two, which is comorbidities, beginning with this episode on obesity. James and I will review relevant guideline information and recent trial data before joining Professor Carol LaRue to hear his advice on how to manage both obesity and diabetes when they both present together. As usual, all references discussed during the session are available in the episode notes. In addition, if you're already thoroughly familiar with this topic, do feel free to skip ahead to the interview at the five minute mark. So over the course of this season, we've reviewed guidance and trial data across the spectrum of diabetes care from diagnosis through to intensification and ultimately injection-based treatment. However, as is often the case, type 2 diabetes does not present as a single condition. As described by Novakovska and colleagues in 2019, most individuals with type 2 diabetes have at least one other chronic condition, including cardiovascular complications, renal disease, depression and pulmonary issues. As such, we'll spend the next few episodes exploring more complex case presentations and how both diabetes and the comorbidity should be managed together. As previously mentioned, we're beginning this series with obesity. The co-occurrence of obesity and diabetes has been well established. As Dowsey and colleagues put it, obesity is the rule among patients attending their hospital diabetes clinic, with 86% of those with type 2 diabetes overweight or obese. Historically, this has been thought of as a unidirectional relationship, with obesity increasing the risk of type 2 diabetes. However, as summarised by Malone and Hansen in 2019, the opposite may also be true. Development of insulin resistance is not secondary to, but instead can be the cause of excessive fat accumulation associated with type 2 diabetes, particularly among lean individuals predisposed to diabetes before they go on to develop obesity. These kinds of observations have drastically changed our understanding of obesity as a disease, shifting from being thought of as the result of inactivity to instead being caused by neurohormonal imbalances that drive changes in behaviour, as demonstrated by Tricia Tan and colleagues' study of continuous infusion of GOP. For more information, see Season 1, Episode 4. These can be driven by both genetic factors, such as the OB gene, but also through epigenetic factors, that is, environmental factors triggering altered gene activity. As recently summarised by Ling and Roon, lifestyle factors such as long-term exercise alter DNA methylation, leading to epigenetically induced changes in DNA expression, and importantly, epigenetics are thought to play a role in transgenerational inheritance, meaning that a parent experiencing obesogenic environmental factors may introduce risk factors to their children without having established high-risk genes. Together, these observations demonstrate clear implications for the clinical management of obesity. Rather than considering it as solely an imbalance between caloric intake and output, obesity should instead be treated as a disease in its own right, treated through a comprehensive management plan, As outlined in Guidelines for Obesity Management in Adults by the European Association for the Study of Obesity, this includes lifestyle interventions, pharmaceutical interventions, and or bariatric surgery. 
In terms of pharmacological management, GLP-1 receptor agonists present a promising class for use in obesity due to their observed effects on weight loss, cardiovascular risk reduction, and blood pressure in people with diabetes. At time of recording, liraglutide is the only agent with approved use in obesity, indicated as an adjunct to reduced calorie diet and physical activity, in people with a BMI above 30 kg per meter squared, or above 27 kg per meter squared, with at least one weight-related comorbidity, including diabetes. The GLP-1 receptor agonist semaglutide, as well as the dual GIP-GLP-1 receptor agonist tezepatide, are under investigation as potential treatments for obesity. Bariatric surgery is also a treatment option that is important to consider in people with obesity, and particularly those who also have type 2 diabetes, especially as its benefits in comorbid patients appear to be greatest when surgery is offered within the first few years after diagnosis of diabetes. A recent paper by Carol LaRue and colleagues analysed the Scandinavian Obesity Surgery Registry to observe the 10-year outcomes of bariatric surgery among those with diabetes or prediabetes. The authors identified that among this cohort of 65,345 patients, those who developed diabetes after surgery had a higher mortality rate rather than those who did not have diabetes prior to surgery. However, those with diabetes going into remission one year after surgery had a lower mortality rate than those who did not go into remission. Considering this and other evidence indicating that greater remission is achieved with earlier intervention, the authors assert that patients should be referred earlier and that clinicians should move away from the idea of surgery against medicine, but rather consider surgery with medicine. This conclusion carries a strong consideration for those who work in diabetes. Where people have both diabetes and a BMI above 30 kilograms per meter squared, how should both conditions be managed? Is it a case of surgery with medicine? Who better to discuss this new disruptive idea than the lead author of this paper, Professor Carol LaRue of University College Dublin? Thank you for joining us, Professor LaRue. Congratulations on the recent paper. Now, this evidence, combined with other observations, suggests that early provision of bariatric surgery is associated with greater remission than when surgery is offered five years or so later. With this in mind, should patients still attempt pharmacotherapy before surgery? How does medicine gel with this surgical option? I think all the evidence now suggests that it doesn't matter what treatment option you decide on, be that diet approaches, medication, or surgery, the earlier you start, the more successful you will be in controlling your type 2 diabetes, but also potentially putting it into remission. So we know that if we can start a very intensive diet approach early, it's, we are more successful. The same is true for medication, and now certainly the same is true for surgery. This does not mean that people who have had diabetes for many years should not attempt diet, medication, or surgery, but we should stop um, delaying patients. We shouldn't say to them, you must first do a diet and then do a medication and then do surgery. We should get to the treatment that the patient are most interested in as quickly as possible. Wonderful, thank you. And that neatly leads on to our next question. For those who do not want to consider surgery, what are the treatments do you typically offer? Um, I think it's important for type 2 diabetes, especially when patients have obesity, to be able to offer all the treatments. So that includes diets, exercise, medications, and surgery. 
I don't think it is reasonable to force somebody into a treatment that they are not interested in. So therefore, if somebody's not interested in surgery, they should not be forced to have surgery. But I also think it is reasonable to discuss all the options with the patients. Um, so even a patient that says to me in my clinic, look, I'm not really interested in surgery. I say I completely understand and respect that. All I want you to do is be aware of all the options. And I will briefly discuss the benefits of surgery with them, but then focus on if they, for example, want medication treatments or they would prefer to have diet approaches. I see. Thank you. And specifically in terms of medication, what sort of treatments do you recommend? I am very enthusiastic about the guidelines from the American Diabetes Association and the European Association for Study of Diabetes, where they try to personalize treatment. So for people with type 2 diabetes who have um, chronic kidney disease or um, cardiac disease, we know that they will start on metformin, but then very quickly progress to GLP-1 analogs or SGLT-2 inhibitors. The same is true for the patients that I predominantly see who have diabetes and obesity, because they will again benefit from metformin as a first line, but then very quickly either GLP-1 analog or SGLT-2 inhibitors. What the guidelines also say, and I think it's not enough, we don't have enough emphasis on it, is that these medications can be combined. So when we combine the GLP-1s and SGLT-2s, that's when we see not only a very impressive reduction in glycemia, but also improvements in blood pressure and body weight. Marvellous, thanks. And looking a bit further towards the future now, what novel therapeutics do you consider ones to watch out for in the space of obesity plus minus diabetes? I think the future is incredibly bright because the pipelines of the big pharmaceutical companies are very impressive. I think we will see more treatments that will be able to give us 20% weight loss on average. And especially when we're going to start combining some of these novel treatments that mostly have to do with gut hormone, um, either be that um, GLP-1 or amylin in combination with PYY, for example, and, and oxyntomodulin. Once we see these combinations, then we are going to get very close to bariatric surgery type weight loss. We may never get to the surgical weight loss and surgery will still be a very important tool for us, um, but certainly we will be able to address the 99% of patients who have type two diabetes and obesity who currently have no treatment for their um, obesity. Excellent. And just with the last time that we have, do you have any closing recommendations to our listeners who may be seeing patients who are really struggling to reduce any sort of body weight? I think we give the message that obesity is not your fault. That does not mean it's not your responsibility, but it does mean that you don't have volitional control over how hungry you feel or how satisfied you feel. So we need to use treatment options um, to allow patients to have the behaviors that they wish. Um, and of course, we can only do that if our treatments make people feel less hungry and more satisfied. And that's what we see happens if we have surgical treatments that's successful or medication treatment that's successful. But what we now need to do is we need to allow obesity to be treated as a chronic disease. It's no more or less special. It's just the same as dyslipidemia or hypertension or type 2 diabetes. We need to start the conversation with our patients. We need to diagnose the disease. And then we need to instigate chronic disease management. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much again for joining us today, Professor LaRue. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And I think we have a real possibility to address obesity as a disease and to reduce the stigma that people with type 2 diabetes and obesity suffer from um, by just handling it as a chronic disease. And we have the tools and I'm very excited about the future. This brings us to the end of today's time. To summarise, in obesity, achieving normalised body weight should be approached with the same principle of early intensive treatment employed to treat hyperglycemia in diabetes. Whichever treatment a person finds effective, whether that is diet and exercise, medication, surgery, they should be encouraged to initiate treatment rapidly. And if one treatment is not effective, they should be supported in moving to an alternative until they find one that best suits them. Thanks for joining us. As a reminder, all references discussed in the episode are available in the description, and we'd love to hear from you on social media. If you haven't done so already, consider subscribing to this podcast on your favourite app, or recommending us to your colleagues. You can also access all of our free accredited CME content at knowledgeandpractice.eu, including interactive case studies, packages for small group learning, and summarised short videos featuring animations that bridge more complicated topics down into simple ideas. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to joining you again in the next episode, where we'll be looking at the co-occurrence of NASH and diabetes.